And welcome back to the Hard to Handle Sports Podcast. Why Musetti beating Alcaraz in Hamburg is a great thing for tennis. The Big Four is showing up at Labor Cup. Why that is going to be such an amazing tournament. And Real Madrid lose to Barcelona 1-0 in Las Vegas. Is it cause for concern for Real Madrid? Should Barcelona fans be excited for the next season? All of that on this episode of the Hard to Handle Sports Podcast. Let's get started. Musetti stuns Alcaraz in Hamburg for his first ATP Tour title. He lets five championship points slip by before finally putting it away in the third set and winning his first ATP Tour title. He said it himself. Um, I cannot describe what I am feeling right now. This is, I think I am still dreaming. And man, it's it's really, it really is incredible because Alcaraz, with, with him getting to the final of Hamburg, goes into the top five of the ATP rankings, being the youngest one to do so since Rafa Nadal did it, I believe, in 2005. So you, you have Alcaraz making history, breaking all these records, getting all the hype. People are talking about him being the next big thing. He's going to be the next Nadal. He's the next Spanish legend. And, you know, a lot of these other youngsters are not getting that same shine. Cinder came a little bit before him and uh, kind of lost a lot of the shine when Alcaraz came by. Musetti's trying to get some of that shine. Nakashima's trying to get some of that shine. All these people, even uh, Felix Audrey Elysium is trying to get some of that shine. So Alcaraz has definitely taken a lot of the, you know, the limelight as of, as of late. So it's good for Musetti to be able to beat Alcaraz in a final. I think this is amazing for tennis. Like, it'll be great. It's great that Carlos Alcaraz is showing this level. And it's great that he's, you know, pushing this next, next generation um, to new heights. And I think it's great for everybody around that age because they're going to look at Carlos Alcaraz just by hearing Musetti talk about Carlos Alcaraz and how much, you know, he motivated him to keep to keep trying, to keep uh, getting better because, you know, they're seeing Alcaraz have this success in the ATP Tour and they played against each other in juniors at the lower levels. So they know that they, they have a chance to keep up with Alcaraz. They just got to continue to put in the work. And for Musetti, it all came together today. Um, even though he did let five championship points slip by, he played a very complete game. He was hitting, you know, his forehand good. His backhand looked nice. He was uh, pretty much peppering every shot in the baseline, keeping Alcaraz at bay. And for Alcaraz, definitely not his best performance. Um, if he would have brought his A game, he probably beats Musetti like 8 out of 10 times, I would say. But today, he did not bring his A game. But like I said, I think this is good for tennis. You have Sinner taking out Alcaraz in Wimbledon. who And I think Sinner's just one year older than him too. You have now Musetti beating him in the final of... Hamburg. So you have these other people, other players around the same age as Alcaraz keeping up with him. And I think that's amazing because like, part of the reason the big three got so big and so good is because they all pushed each other. First, Federer took, you know, he, he became the greatest ever. He became the greatest talent that we've seen, the most elegant player. Um, he took the tour by storm, won all these um, majors and Grand Slams and Masters 1000s, ATP 500s. He was the king. And then a dog came through and pushed him. Put, they pushed each other. Djokovic got into it. And now all three of them pushed each other to 
these greater, greater heights that we thought were not possible. And a lot of people are scared about um, what's going to happen once the big three retire. Like, is this next generation going to be able to carry the mantle, keep tennis relevant, bring more fans into it? And I think, you know, if Alcaraz would be the only one that's amazing from that generation, from that age group, then it could get a little dull. It could get a little boring um, just seeing the same person win over and over again. And so if you see Musetti, if you see Felix, if you see Sinner, if you see um, Nakashima, all these people around the other age creeping up the rankings, showing that they could, you know, win titles too, showing that they could be the, um, you know, mainstays in the ATP tour for years and years to come, then I think that bodes well for the sport. We need rivalries. We need some rivalries for Alcaraz to build up. Um, because the big three, although like you know, it'll be they'll have a rivalry for like a couple years. The big three is on their way out, so Alcaraz can't really build a long rivalry with either of them or any of them. Um, Federer is still recovering. Nadal, they've had a couple good matches now, um, but you know Nadal is on his way out, especially with all the injuries he keeps getting, and as as in good form as Djokovic is in and has good health. And all of the things he's done to his diet to prolong his career. He is, you know, 35 years old. So how long is he going to play till 45 years? You know, if you have Musetti as your rival, you could play against him for, you know, the better part of the 10 plus years coming up. So I think this is good for tennis. Congratulations to Musetti for winning his first ATP Tour title. Um, congratulations to Alcaraz for being the youngest to break into the top five since Nadal. And, you know, I'm excited to see this next, next generation, see if they could start making some um, some damage in these in these Grand Slams. Like, let's see if any of these guys, Musetti, um, Sinner, Alcaraz, Nakashima, Rouge, like all these guys, if they could, you know, do some damage at the U.S. Open, if they could really get to the semifinals, get to the finals, um, if they could, you know, start winning some of these major Grand Slams. Because the next gen of, you know, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev, team, like, they had their chance. And, you know, Team won one, Medvedev won one, and the other ones are still trying to get their first one, even Berrettini. So we'll see if this next next gen, you know, overlaps the next gen. I, I have a feeling that they will. I kind of like this batch of players a little more. But what do you guys think? Was it good that Musetti beat Alcaraz? Were you guys rooting for Alcaraz to, to win? Let me know what you guys think. Mark your calendars for September 23rd through the 25th. The big four will be teammates at Labor Cup to take on Team World, representing Team Europe. It's going to be amazing. Murray, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic all teaming up. Um, it's scary hours for Team World. Um, since 2017, the beginning of the Labor Cup, they have not won one. And I imagine I could put my money on it, put the mortgage on it, I could put, you know, everything on my bank account, my savings account, that Team World is going to win. You got, you know, the four mammoths of of tennis of this generation. And pretty much you're going to add Medvedev or um, T.C. Paz or Zverev if he's, if he's back from his injury to this big four. There's no chance. I know, um, you know, Taylor Fritz is having a good year. He's probably he's having the best year of his career. Diego Schwartzman, he's, you know, he's been consistent for a long, long time. Felix Auger-Elysium is having one of his better years, too. Probably Zverev is going to be there. He he tends to be at the Labor Cup a lot. 
there's some good team world players, but man, you have the big four representing team Europe. There's no, there's like no chance. Even with Federer coming back from injury and Nadal probably rumored that he might only play doubles and Murray, you know, hasn't been like the Murray of the past after his hip injury. You still got Djokovic. You still got the other players that are going to join them. It's like, unfortunately, I think Team World doesn't have a chance. And but overall, I think it's still it's still going to be must watch TV. The Big Four playing as teammates, it's it's incredible. It's it, a lot of people kind of shit on the Lyrica because it's it's like an exhibition. It's not real tennis per se. It's it's just for fun and you know it's a cash grab. A lot of people hate on it, but I think it's great. I think it's real fun. I think seeing all these four, the big four playing along each other is going to be amazing for tennis, for the sport, to get casuals in, to get, uh, you know, attention into tennis. I think it's going to be great. One of the things that I've been seeing, though, recently regarding this tournament is people, you know, debating the idea of the big four and how Murray shouldn't be in it. And I get it. Like, it's kind of hard to call it a big four when Nadal has 22, Murray, um, Djokovic has 21, Federer has 20, and then you have Murray with three. And then people are like, if, if you're going to make it a big four, then it should be a big five because Vavrinka won three himself. So it's like, why is Stan not considered part of the big five? Why is Murray considered part of it? But like, what they don't understand is that they're not saying that Murray is as good as the other three. They're pretty much just acknowledging that Murray was the one that made it to the end of these tournaments at the end of these tournaments for for most of the years, like the last 10, 12 years. If you were to look at any of the big tournaments, any of the Masters 1000s, the Grand Slams, for the most part, you would see these four guys in there. Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, Murray going at it. Unfortunately for Murray, he was on the losing end of a lot of these encounters. He would make it to the semis, he would make it to the quarters, but along the way, whether it be a final, the Australian Open, he's never won. Um, wherever it was, I think he's gone to like five or six Australian Open finals and he's not won any of them because he's played against Djokovic or Federer for the most part. It would be these four getting to it. And let's not forget, Stan never got to the year-end number one. He was never even the number one at any point of any of these years. Djokovic in 2016 finished as the number one player, year end number one. He held number one for a little bit. He won the ATP Finals. Um, he he did you know win Wimbledon twice. He has two gold medals from the Olympics. So I think there is a difference between um, Stan and Andy. If like if you don't think that difference is big enough to get him into the Big Four, I could understand that, but. To say that it should be a big five instead of a big four, like, I don't see that. Because Stan, although he did win three, and he's, like, one Grand Slam from competing the career Grand um, Grand Slam, he did not dominate the rest of the field as consistently as Murray did. And even though Murray did, I get both sides of the argument, because even though Murray did, for the most part, dominate the rest of the field, he struggled against the big three um, pretty much as as hard as everybody else except he did get the number one so he he does stand out as you know the the best player of the bunch so it's like the big three 
And they're not just the big three of the era. They're like the big three of tennis of all time. Like these are the three best players of all time. And Murray was able to, you know, not only win slams during that time, but he was also able to end as the year-end number one. I think that's why people coined the big t- big four term. And I agree with it. I have no problem with putting Murray as the big four because, like I said, he was running through foos. He was winning tournaments. He he was going on long win streaks. Yeah, I think he had like a 20-plus win streak, won five tournaments in a row, won the ATP finals against Djokovic to be the year-end number one in 2016. So, like, Murray was a beast. He's a dog. He's an amazing player. And if it's not for this big three, I think Murray in any other generation um, wins at least like seven or eight. And then it's not, you know, really a debate that he's one of the all-time greats. But unfortunately, he, he got he got born, he got raised in the same generation as these, you know, behemoths of the sport. So it's, it's, it's not fair to him. But I do think it's a big four. And regardless of his big four, big three, it's going to be great to see them all compete. And I'm definitely going to be tuning in. Will you guys be tuning in? Or are you guys one of those people that think the Labor Cup is just an exhibition? Probably tune into something else. And to wrap it up, Barcelona beat Real Madrid 1-0 in Las Vegas. First time ever El Clasico has been played in the U.S. I'm pretty sure that's the first time. I mean, it was expected. Sold out Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. Both, both fan bases brought in a lot of people. Real Madrid, they had like a big ass parade coming in on the freeway, taking over, you know, a lot of the stands. Barcelona fans were loud in the stadium too. Unfortunately for us, Madristas, Real Madrid fans like myself, Real Madrid did lose 1-0 to Barcelona. And you got to give credit where credit is due. Barcelona is looking stronger than last year. They kind of mortgaged their future, selling their TV rights, selling their part of their TV deals to get out of this debt that they're currently in. And they brought in Rafinha, they brought in Lewandowski, they brought in, you know, Christensen. They brought in a lot of players to help fortify that team. And I think, you know, even as a Real Madrid fan, I could say that their team definitely looks better than it did last year. Um, they look pretty fast. Their pressing was on point. Are they going to be able to press like this for the full season, Champions League, Copa del Rey, La Liga, all that good stuff? Are they going to be able to do it for that, for that long We'll find out as the league progresses, but they definitely look better. We'll see if we have a competitive La Liga this year. With that being said, Real Madrid was without their talisman, without Mr. Ballon de Oro for this upcoming Ballon de Oro awards. Benzema did not play. You know, they were giving him a longer vacation. They were giving him a little time to recover. He did not play. And as we all know, Benzema makes that Real Madrid, that Real Madrid team goes it's kind of scary and a good thing at the same time. Like we're still relying on him and he's getting up there in age, but it's the truth. Like you could book it. He's going to win the Ballon de Oro. So if you don't have your Ballon de Oro star player, it's going to show on the field. It's still preseason. Ancelotti was kind of experimenting with the team a lot too, or at least a little bit. So it was not the most, it was not the smoothest display of, you know, soccer by Real Madrid. So a little concerning, but not too concerning. Um, Real Madrid definitely needed a little help at the backup nine. Ancelotti played Hazard as the false nine. And, you know, it wasn't the best performance. Hazard is still coming back from injury, still getting back into form. We'll see how how he does this season. But a crazy statistic that I just saw is it's been 1,143 days since Hazard signed with Real Madrid. 
And this is the first Clásico that he's played. And it's just crazy that it's being played in the U.S., in Las Vegas, and that it took him over a thousand days for him to defend Los Blancos in the Clásico for the first time. So that's crazy. Um, we'll see. Hopefully, uh, Benzema, I mean, hopefully Hazard keeps his promise that he had on that parade for the Champions League saying that, um, you know, the pro es próximo año. Like, I think everyone has seen, has seen that video where he kind of promises the Real Madrid fans that he's going to, you know, not be injured this year. Hopefully he doesn't know that. But, you know, he said that he's been injured a lot, but next year he's going to make it all worth it. He still doesn't look as fit as we would like to, but, you know, he has some time to get fit. The concerning thing for Real Madrid was that there were zero shots on target. You know, they hit the post one time, but over, overall they didn't look too dangerous. But, like I said, it's preseason. I'm not too scared. Benzema is going to come back. Mr. Ballon de Oro is going to come back. And um, Hazard hopefully gets into form. And hopefully there's, you know, maybe a signing or two to come to help straighten that, you know, front nine for Real Madrid. But overall, like I said, I'm not too taken aback from this game. Uh, I think the energy was electric. I think for the most part, all these friendlies that I've seen in the U.S. have been a success, um, which is good. It's good to see. Um, you know, soccer, football, take a take. You know, center center stage. A lot of this summer, there's only baseball on TV, so a lot of these soccer games have been televised. It's been like you know, I have heard people talk about them. So it's good to see you know the soccer culture in the U.S. start to grow or keep growing as we head into the 2026 World Cup. But overall, you know, it was a iconic day to have the El Clasico in the U.S. in U.S. soil in Las Vegas, and for you know sellout crowd it looked like everyone was having a good time obviously the rivalry will be a rivalry no matter where it's played like there was definitely altercations it looked like you know players were going to get against each other Araujo and Rudiger going at it it was you could still feel the the intensity so that was that's kind of what I wanted to see I, I like especially for the people that went I know my boy Jason went shout out to Jason and you know everyone that went pretty much dropped a pretty penny on that game so it was good to see that the intensity was still there by the players. The rivalry still felt like it was there. They still, both teams still looked like they hated each other. Unfortunately for us, Madristas, you know, we lose 1-0. But I think we'll be all right. We won La Liga. We won Champions League. And we do look like the favorites to win La Liga again. And, you know, if anybody wants to count us out for Champions League, it's at their own, you know, risk. But it is funny to see how the Barcelona Twitter account reacts to these goals um, there's a comparison out there that's like the Real Madrid Twitter account reacting to um, Vinicius scoring in the Champions League and then the reaction to Barcelona scoring a goal in a friendly against Real Madrid. And like, it's just funny. Like Barcelona, they Barcelona does really think a lot about Real Madrid. Like they were talking about how they last time we played, they beat us like 4-0. But like since then, we've won Champions League and La Liga. So like, and you guys are, you know, struggling to get a team together and pay players. So it is what it is. Congratulations to Barcelona for winning 1-0. I don't want to sound too salty. It is what it is. It's a friendly, and I'm excited to see what Real Madrid does the rest of the season or preseason. I am going to go see them against America on Tuesday. So that's going to be amazing. I'm super pumped for that. But, you know, shout out Barcelona for definitely improving your squad. But that should do it for this episode of the Hard to Handle Sports Podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Peace.
Have a good one.